Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Sam, and I'm one of the elders here at Crossway. Hey, listen, I know that Matt just prayed. Would you mind if I pray? Um, I really need the help. And if you could do me a favor and pray for me as I pray for you, I would love that. God, um, we need you. We need to know how preeminent you are. We need you to be relevant. We need to see your power. And no amount of screaming, no amount of persuasion can do that besides your Holy Spirit. So come, come now, and help us learn. And Jesus may pray, amen, amen, amen. All right, guys, so I am so excited to be preaching this text that I woke up and it felt like I just slammed a Red Bull, all right? Because what Paul is going to do is just throw us straight into the tsunami glory of Jesus, just completely drowning us wave after wave of glory. So I'm excited. But, you know, before we jump right into the text, we want to be good interpreters of the word, right? We care about the Bible and what it says. So with every text uh, we work on as elders here at Crossway, we grab our hermeneutic shovel and we start just digging into the text. And sometimes, to be honest with you guys, it can take hours, especially with my little shovel. So with all this digging, we want to come up and find something called the main point, the treasure, the whole passage that fits it together. But it's kind of funny. This text right here, it's like Paul already did all the, did all the digging for us. He like dug a hole for us and just shoves us right in, just shouts, hey, the main point of the text, you guys, it's right here, it's right here. And it's this in verses 15 to 23, this is the main point. Continue trusting in Jesus and in no other alternative, because Jesus is preeminent. Continue trusting in Jesus and no other alternative, because Jesus is preeminent. Now, I don't know when the last time I used the word preeminent. I don't think that comes out regularly in our vocabulary today. Um, I think one of my words, if you were to track what I say, it's probably, dude, bro, or stop that. When I'm talking to my kids, that's what usually comes out of my mouth. So let's look at the, what the definition is about preeminence. And we're going to do a little Google search with uh, Dr. Webster, okay? So he defines preeminence as this, quote, having paramount rank or importance, supreme, outstanding, end quote. Pretty good, right? But, you know, even that definition in this context still doesn't give the proper due of the awesomeness of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. So let's try it like this, all right? I want you guys to imagine that you are going to fly across the world, across the country, to climb what you believe is the tallest mountain in the world. And as you get there, you know, you put on your gear and you're climbing up and you find that this mountain is so massive, so huge, that in order to keep on going, you have to actually have to camp out so you don't pass out from all the thinning of air, right? And after days, days of arduous climbing, sometimes you have to crawl on rock and stone, you make it. You make it to the top. You reach the pinnacle of the mountain summit, and you look out, 
and it's breathtaking. It knocks your socks off. You look around and you're about to cry, it's so beautiful. And as you're trying to take it all in, you look from side to side, and then you slowly look behind you, only to notice that you're in the shadow of an even more monstrous mountain. See, the top of that mountain is just the raindrop in the vast ocean of God's preeminence, his authority, his rule, his supremacy, his preeminence. Now, here's a question, though, I want to ask to all of you here. Does Jesus' preeminence actually affect you? Does Jesus' preeminence affect how you work at your job? Does it affect how you raise your kids? Does it affect how you interact with your spouse? Does Jesus' preeminence affect how you fight against that sin that you just can't get over? Does Jesus' preeminence have domain on how you to relate to fellow sinners? Listen, Jesus' preeminence has everything to do with how we live the Christian life. In fact, it has everything to do about being a Christian. And that is what Paul hangs his hat on, not only in this passage, but in this entire letter. That is, to trust in Jesus and no other alternatives because he is preeminent. He is the source of your maturity. He is the source of your completeness. And so this passage that we're going to work through, verses 13 to 23, is the linchpin holding this whole letter together. That if we don't understand Jesus' preeminence and how that relates to us, then we will be in similar danger as the church in Colossae of thinking that Jesus isn't enough. That we need to do something else or something in addition to Jesus to satisfy or to mature and to complete us. And see, this is what was happening in the church at Colossae. That they were shifting, they were losing their foothold on the solid rock in which we stand. Plus, see, they were believing in a teaching that had an amalgamation of different truths swimming in the culture milieu of the day. And essentially, it boils down to something like an influencer on TikTok would say, all right? It'd be something like, yo, I'm a Christian, and I believe in Jesus too, but let me tell you something. You need more than that. You need this thing, this teaching, this technique, this new book, this new series, this podcast, this conference, this new prophecy, this particular gift, this guru to fill you, complete you, to satisfy you, and to mature you. Now, those influencers on TikTok may not say it directly like that, but it's definitely repackaged in a thousand different ways that we get every single day. And Paul, having a pastor's heart, wants to warn the Colossian church about these influencers. So turn to chapter 2 real quick, and you'll see this warning that he does in chapter 2. All right? Chapter 2, verse 4, we'll go pretty quick. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Go down to verse 16. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reasons by a sensuous mind. And then verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. See, the Colossian church was being tempted to believe that Jesus was not enough. That they actually needed something other than Jesus to help them mature and to be complete in the faith. So Paul, through Epaphras, the founding pastor of Colossae, sends this letter to them in order to equip these young believers to fight against those lies. And he does that by pointing towards Jesus' preeminence. And you know how Paul starts out this letter? By doing what every good pastor does, by praying, right? So... Um, this is what Kirk preached over last week. And that main point in Paul's prayer is not that they would be filled with their own self-sufficiency, not that they would know more religious laws, not that they would know more doctrine and teachings or read more books. Paul prays that they would be filled. But filled with what? Look at chapter 1, verse 9. Go back to chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll see it. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, Paul wants us to be filled like a state fair's cream puff. We are to be filled with the yummy goodness of the knowledge of God's will. And when we are filled with the knowledge of God's will in all his wisdom and understanding, verse 10, we bear fruit in every good work. Our knowledge spurs us on to bearing good fruit. See, we're not people that just have our heads stuck up in the clouds. What we believe actually has feet to it. We actually live what we believe out. Um, have you guys ever like met someone that just knows so much about a particular thing, but they don't do a lick with all that knowledge, right? It's frustrating. It's frustrating. All they do is talk a good game. But here, God through Paul prays that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because having wisdom and understanding imprints knowledge onto the soul. So it becomes part of you. It becomes who you are. And get this, uh, verse 10. Let me read you verse 10, the last part here. So as a walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening here? It comes back full circle. As you increase in the knowledge of God, you bear fruit, and then as you bear fruit, you increase, increase more in the knowledge of God, which you then increase more in good fruit. This is the beautiful cycle of the Christian life. And this is what being filled in the knowledge of God looks like in life. Um, do you guys know what centripetal force is? 
Yeah, I see some head nods. That's pretty impressive. I had to look it up. So it's a force of direction that spirals toward the center. It's like a toilet bowl, right? Here, you can think of the Christian life not as a toilet bowl, but as something as a centrifugal force, which is a force of direction that spirals, spirals and expands outward like a tornado. See, the Christian life is a centrifugal force steadily expanding itself out towards love and good works in the knowledge of God. It's beautiful. But uh, I see some smiles out there. And I know some of the questions and thoughts that you're thinking. I know that I have those too. Um, and it's sort of like this, right? Hey, Sam. My life doesn't look like that. It looks more like a toilet bowl, all right? I'm not even close to a tornado. Where am I going wrong? Well, read with me verse 11. And read it slowly, so you'll miss it. All right, verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Family, the energy required to live as a Christian, a life that bears much good fruit, that doesn't, it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come inside of you. It comes from him. It's from God the Father above. He's the one providing us the energy source. He's the one that's providing the protein, the vitamins and minerals to produce this beautiful centrifugal life. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, by the way. For God does so much more than just give us joy and patience, which is all good. Verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hey, not only is the centrifugal life a life full of, of patience and joy, but we also have an inheritance waiting for us, a reward where no moth and rust can destroy. We also are citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom not of darkness, but the kingdom of the radiant light that, where there is no need for a sun or a lamp because of the light is so bright and it's found in the face of Jesus. We also are free from the shame and penalty of sin because of the complete forgiveness we have found in Jesus. Kirk, this is the gourmet of the gospel. All right, family, how, how our lives would change if we fully believe this truth, that we have complete forgiveness, that there is grace for our mistakes, and that we will forever live with God. Wouldn't that completely change your world? But, you know, like a pesky fly in the ear, you just want to hit it. The thought comes again, where am I going wrong? And I want to submit to you this, that the degree we fail to see how preeminent and gloriously powerful Jesus is, to quote Dr. Paul Tripp, to that degree, God's love and the hope of the gospel will not comfort you. 
to the degree that we fail to see how preeminent and gloriously powerful Jesus is, to that degree God's love and the hope of the gospel will not comfort you. That when we try to preach the gospel to another or even to ourselves, about the power, the forgiveness, the character, the reconciling nature of Jesus, to that degree that we fail to see that preeminency of Jesus, the gospel's going to seem like a Band-Aid, a quick fix. You know, um, I remember there were moments in my marriage where instead of being patient with Abby, um, giving her the truths of the gospel as she struggles with doubt, I, being a brilliant husband, would rather give her my fix-it solutions, rather give her some advice, rather give her some practical things to do, because that's what's important now, right? It even happened last night. <laughs> you see, I, I know that I need to give her the gospel here, but I didn't believe it in here. And it's that I don't believe that Jesus can actually help in my situation, that I actually question his preeminence. And this is why verses 15 to 23 is critical for us to understand. That if we don't see Jesus as preeminent, having all power, control, and authority, the gospel preached to you, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, will be like someone throwing as hard as they can a cotton ball straight at your chest. It's going to be like nothing instead of what it should be a freight train ready to smash your idols. So, verse 15, Paul doesn't hold back. He's going to go straight for the KO and just knock us right off. Verse 15, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, Paul is not beating around the bush here. He says it plain and clear that Jesus is God. He's, he's not some dude walking around doing metrics, okay? He's, he's not like another prophet like our Islamic friends would say. Uh, he's not a love child from marrying God, the Father, like our Mormon friends would say. Uh, he's not formally the archangel like our Jehovah Witnesses friends would say. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. <laughs> and you know, just in case it's not clear, just in case it's not clear enough, Paul continue, continues on and says this weird phrase, ready? End of verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. What? Okay, real quick, what does that mean? Two things. Firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was this first created being like some cults would say, okay? That's their go-to verse, by the way. This is really good to kind of settle here and learn. See, number one, in the Old Testament, the word firstborn can be used to denote position and authority. Um, for example, let me read you Psalm uh, chapter 89, verse 27. You don't have to turn there. You can just pin it. Um, Psalm 89, verse 27. And the context is that the psalmist Ethan is writing about David, and he's quoting God here, okay? Verse 27 and I, God, will make David the firstborn. All right, pause for a second. That's weird, right? Like, wait, I thought David had seven older brothers. What's going on here, God? Right? So, okay, unpause. 
Let's read the rest of the verse, okay? And I will make him, the firstborn, here we go, the highest of the kings of the earth. See that denotion? Denotes position and authority. Even so, number two, all you have to do to make sense of the word firstborn is just read the next two verses. It's crazy. Read with me verse 16 to 17. For by him all things were created, not him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. See, it, it wouldn't make sense for Paul to say that Jesus was a created being and then say, oh, I'm just joking. You know, all things were created through him and for him, right? That's weird. It just doesn't make sense with this context. Also in verse 17, to say that Jesus is a created creature isn't consistent to what it says that when it says he's before all all things. In his uh, commentary, Dr. Sam Storms writes this, the word firstborn itself does not necessarily mean first in a sequence or first in time. It can also mean first in rank or supreme in dignity. The point here is that the Son, by virtue of being the image of God, has a preeminence and exercises a sovereignty over everything else that exists. End quote. So when this text uses the term firstborn, it is paramount for us to understand that it is equivalent to saying that Jesus is supreme, that he is top dog, he is top authority, that Jesus is preeminent. So what is he preeminent over? And the text cuts it into two categories. The first category is in verse 15 that we just read, that he is the firstborn of all creation. And the second category is in verse 18. Here we go. And he is the head of the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is the firstborn of all creation and firstborn of the dead. And I think what Paul did here was amazingly clever, right? That um, there's no category, even future categories, that Paul and in that time, the people in that history had no idea about that God is still not preeminent over. Um, I, don't know, I don't know who I was talking to. I think it was one of the Wagonettes. I think it was like Nathan or something, and uh, we are talking about string theory. And if you don't know about string theory, it's crazy, okay? What... This, it's a new like theory in physics. Basically, you know, there's three dimensions. There's um, gravity, space, and time, right? And to understand the mathematics behind that, what holds that all together still doesn't make sense. We just don't know. And for the math to make sense, they're proposing there's nine more dimensions outside of that, right? That's crazy. I don't even know what's outside of that. And yet, Jesus is preeminent out of all those nine more dimensions, that was a side note. I thought that was pretty crazy. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to verse 15. Verse 15, okay. So he's the image of the Israel, the firstborn of all creation. And then Paul goes on to explain what the creation says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
All right, so the Apostle Paul is being so thorough here, okay? Um, Jesus is preeminent over heaven and on earth. And remember, when we use the word heaven in the Bible, it's not like, you know, those cartoons where angels are chilling up in clouds and just playing harps, okay? That's not the word heaven here. Heaven means, if you go back to Genesis 1, the heaven, you know, the God created the heavens and the earth and separated the two. Heaven means the sky and space, okay? And here Paul is saying how total Jesus' authority runs, that it runs from everything from the earth all the way to the farthest reaches of space. You know, uh, last month, um, the James Webb Telescope launched and uh, it, it gave images out, and it launched in December. So this is the latest, greatest telescope that we have. And it released the deepest images of space that has ever been taken. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, you got to go home, Google it, and start nerding out on all those pictures, okay? Because it looks absolutely insane. It lo- I like to tell my wife this, that it looks so good that it looks fake, okay? It looks like a whole bunch of Mike and Ikes just exploding in a da- thousand different ways. Like, man, is that real? It's so, like, humbling to look at that image. And it's humbling, too, if you think about it, not at the beauty of it, but also if you think about the age of that picture. Um, did you know the fastest thing that we can calculate here on Earth is the speed of light, right? It's pretty fast, super fast. Uh, you could be in China hooked up to a power source here in Wisconsin, and you could flip a switch in China, and there's like no lag, right? It just comes right up all the way. But did you know that when we see stars in the sky, and especially images from space telescopes, the space is so vast, so massive, that the light you see is old light. Like that light had to travel such a distance, it took millions of years to be near enough so you can actually comprehend and see it. So we can't see the ends of space because space is so vast that light hasn't traveled here yet for us to capture it. And yet, even space does not outsize the preeminence of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is preeminent over all the heavens. He is preeminent over all the orbits, all the galaxies. But y'all, you could, you could forget the heavens for a second, right? We still don't know what's going on on Earth. You know, do you know the Mariana Trench? The Mariana Trench is located in the Pacific Ocean, and it is a trench so deep, no one has ever transversed the bottom of it. Like, you can put Mount Everest in this trench, and it will still be covered up with room to spare. And it's so deep, in fact, that it would crush a submarine like an aluminum soda can. No eyes have ever seen the depths of this trench, and we don't even know what sea creatures lie down there. I watched a movie yesterday, and then they proposed that there were aliens down there, so that would be kind of crazy. Okay? And yet, even there, amongst the crushing pressure, Jesus is in control. Jesus has authority. Jesus is 
preeminent. And see, Paul goes on from nature to talk about the power structures that have existed throughout human history in verse 16. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the thrones, dominions, and authorities, the Alexander the Great, the, the King Henrys, Genghis Khan, Mao, Putin, Biden, Bush, Trump, Obama, they're all subservient to the throne of our preeminent king. And even the invisible world, like that of spiritual demonic authorities, angels, strange spirits, and religious prophets, they too are subservient to the greatest preeminent prophet and priest, Jesus. You know, uh, my son Jude at times is scared of the dark because he fears something called the Gruffalo, okay? It's a, it's a monster we read in a book one time, and we always have to remind Jude, hey, Jude, is the Gruffalo in control? No, Dad. Okay, who's in control? Jesus. Okay. Uh, hey, Jude, um, who's more powerful? Is the Gruffalo more powerful than Jesus? No, Dad, Jesus is. Amen, right? Um, we always have to remind him who's the most powerful king. Uh, but here's the funny thing. I am no better than my little Jude dude. Because there were plenty of times that Ryan Bykowski had to preach that same message to me during the last two election cycles. And... Um, he would, he would say to me, Sam, there is no party or government election vote policy that is greater authority than what King Jesus has now. I need that message, and I know that you guys need that message. We all need to know that there is nothing on earth or in heaven, invisible or visible, that has greater power or authority than King Jesus Jesus is preeminent over all creation. It was the famous Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper that describes the preeminence of Jesus as this. And he says, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, Mine. End quote. Every molecule, every cell, every subatomic particle, Jesus cries, mine. Second, Jesus is preeminent over the new creation. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the head of the most powerful institution on the planet. And the one institution that will last into the new creation, right? Not IBM, not Apple. We're not going to see them there. There's only one institution that's going to last. You know what that is? The church. Amen. The church. And I think we tend to forget that in Matthew 16, 18, it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Right? It seems like sometimes we feel like the church is on defense, right? And it's getting its gates busted in. 
But no, family, we're, we're on offense. We're going, we're charging in, and we're bussing down the gates of hell all the way to the new creation. And the reason why we can do that is, is that we have no one stronger, no one more powerful than our captain. Jesus is preeminent over all creation. And when he returns, he's going to reconcile everything to himself. Verse 19 and 20. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen, if... if uh, Anyone questions if God cares about the environment, just show them these verses, okay? Because Jesus is the best environmentalist in town, right? He is going to restore all the groans that the earth has made since the fall, Romans 8, Genesis 3. All the crazy weather patterns, all that wildfires, all the floods, earthquakes, they will be no more. And in a new creation, there's going to be perfect peace. No more tears, no more death, no more sadness, no more pain. And there, reigning supreme, making all that happen, is Jesus. He is preeminent over the new creation. So from creation to new creation, Jesus is Lord. He has penultimate power and authority of all. And with all of that preeminence, all that Jesus has done and made, do you know what the angels and what you and I will marvel at forever in the new creation? It's these next two verses here. Verse 21. And you, who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, in your hostility towards God, wanting to run far away from him in your rebellion. A rebellion against the one that by the word of his power burst stars into existence, that could fold like space, like a piece of paper. The one that creates each snowflake on the top of Mount Everest. The preeminent one becomes the vulnerable one for you. See, he unravels the scroll of your life before him their preeminent one, Jesus, and he looks at all the recorded wrongs you have ever committed, ever, every evil thought that came out of your mind, all the hatred that has ever filled your heart, all the lustful desires that cut you up inside, all the ways you love other things more than God, all the shame and regret from your imperfection. He rolls that all out before him. And the preeminent one concentrates his power, not in crushing you, but in saving you. See, he erases your name on that scroll and instead writes another name. His. 
Now, he could have thrown your sins out to the far reaches of space. He could have dug it deep down the Mariana Trench, but it still would read unpaid, wouldn't it? The receipt would still be there. It would just be farther away. But because he put his name on it, because he was the one that took all your guilt for you and it takes it as his own and says that every sin and everything else that you've ever committed, he goes and he pays for all that by his blood, by going to the cross and dying for all of your evil. So there's never going to be an accounting day for you. There's no debt collector that's going to text you or knock on your door and say, hey, you got to pay up right now. That's never, ever going to happen. And then you also discover a new scroll in your hand. And you unroll his scroll, actually. And as you unroll, unravel his scroll of his life, you read, blameless, holy, above reproach, perfect, no shame. And the marvelous thing is, is that instead of your name, instead of his name written on that, it's yours. Your name is written on it. See, the preeminent one becomes a vulnerable one in order to pay your penalty sin and present you, verse 22, holy and blameless and above reproach before God, your Father in heaven. Amen. My friends, this is what we'll be marveling at and singing about for 10,000 years in the new creation. And the chorus of joy, the crescendo, will not fade away. It will just continue to build more and more for all of eternity. And so believers, to the degree you see how deep your sin goes, the more dumbfounded and in awe that you'll be at the preeminent Jesus, that he'd be so kind to pay your penalty and reconcile you to God. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 23. Verse 23, if indeed you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Hey, Paul is saying, hey, don't shift from the gospel. Don't shift from the power and sheer brilliance of the good news that you have in Jesus. He is preeminent. If he is preeminent over the heavens and the earth, rulers and authorities, the kingdoms, visible and invisible, surely he is preeminent over your maturity, over your fullness, over your completeness. You don't need any other alternative. Don't shift from this mighty, preeminent Jesus. And that's why we celebrate communion here that as we partake of the bread and the juice, that we proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to each other that the preeminent one was able to do what no one else can. Forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to God. So in a moment, we're going to take communion here. And if you're a believer of Jesus, we invite you to come in and join us. But if you don't believe in Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We want you to pray. Pray in your seat and ask Jesus to be the preeminent one for you. How we take communion here is as the band sings, you can come down the inner aisle, 
grab the elements and go back to your seats. We're gonna partake of communion as a family together. Um, I'm gonna pray real quick and then come when you're ready. God, thank you that um, you're here, that you're with us. Help us to see and know your preeminence in our daily lives. Lord, you can do this. We know that you're powerful. Help us to see that and let the gospel have its full effect on us. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come when you're ready. Family, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's continue to worship. <laughs> 